Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Glad I'm here sober today through God's grace and you people. And my sobriety date is June 3rd of 1984. And... Uh, They've they've scheduled us for two hours and ten minutes, so I was just talking to Lee. Somewhere somewhere in the middle of that, we'll we'll take a little little break because Lee's got to change the uh, the CD, and so uh, if you need a bathroom break, whenever, but that that'll be a, at least a, a time when we'll we'll step away for a couple minutes anyway. Um, what they've asked me to do in this session? Oh wait, I'm supposed to read this blurb. Hold on. because they know how good I am at this part. But anyway, uh, I am capable of it. I just got to find it. Okay, here we go. Um, the name of this talk is Mike C's Story, Culture of Sobriety. So I'm going to kind of move from the personal to the group as we as we go through. Please take a moment to silence all your electronic devices. If you need to use yours during the meeting, please take it outside. We ask that you not make any personal recording of this or any meeting. I'd like to add something to that. I think in sobriety, if we can get away from our cell phones for an hour or two, that's good. So unless you're a brain surgeon or something, you probably don't need to use it in the next hour. Um, But if you do, then it's fine. It's just my two cents. Please join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Okay, in the spirit of carrying the essay message, this meeting is being recorded. If you are not, if, if you are not sure your share will be appropriate or on topic, please participate by listening. The according, recording equipment will not be turned off for any reason. If you wish to share, so when we do Q&A, there's the mic. Uh, please speak directly into the microphone so the listener can follow you. If you wish not to be recorded, we invite you to participate by listening or attending another session. Please do not touch any of the recording <coughs> equipment. The speaker will share their experience, strength, and hope on their topic for as long as they desire. Oh, boy, that's dangerous. I do have a watch here, compliments of Matthew, though, which which will help with that. If time permits... He may open the meeting for questions and answers. I, time will definitely permit. I'm going to try to leave at least half of this or close to it for Q&A because I think that's where you're going to learn more. You're going to be able to tell me about what's going on in your groups that you specifically need help with. Okay. Um, guidelines for sharing or asking a question. Please come up ahead of your turn to the mic. Speak clearly so everyone can hear you. When asking a question, please just ask the question without, with, without going into much detailed background information. In participation, we avoid topics that lead to distension or distractions, explicit sexual descriptions, sexually abusive language, emphasis is on honesty, recovery and healing, how to apply the 12 steps and 12 traditions in our daily lives, no crosstalk. If someone feels another is getting inappropriately explicit or focusing excessively on the problem rather than solution, they may signify by quietly raising their hand. Although this is an anonymous meeting, please remember anonymity does not mean legal confidentiality. Please do not share any felony for which you have not been adjudicated. Else we would be required to inform law officials to protect the injured. I'm glad, by the way, that that does not include not being able to share contemplated felonies that have not been committed yet, because that would shorten my talk substantially. Please be mindful of what you share, and uh, don't break anybody's anonymity. Uh, let's see. Okay, when there are three minutes left, read this. Okay, okay so that's blurred. So, 
like I said, I'm going to try to move from the individual to the group um, and just talk about my own story, my own recovery, and how that led me into, over time, the idea that um, a big part of my own recovery was going to be focused on trying to strengthen group sobriety. So um, I'd like to start again at the beginning. My name is Mike, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Sober since June 3rd of 1984. Uh, I'm the second oldest of seven kids from an Irish Catholic family on the south side of Chicago. Uh, I was a fairly rare breed in that I was a south side Cub fan. Um, most of uh, south siders are Sox fans and north siders are Cub fans. But uh, I came from a mixed family. My father's family had three, six kids, three Cub fans and three Sox fans. And um, I know we're not supposed to talk about outside issues, but... Uh, there was a lot of tension around that. That was serious business, and uh, and it still is. Um, so anyway, more importantly, uh, in addition to being Cub fans, there were a lot of alcoholics in my family. And uh, from the time I was very, very young, uh, every single human being I ever met drank. Almost every single human being I ever met drank too much. And the one who didn't, drink at all. The only person I knew who didn't drink at all was my father's mother. I never did understand that until I was about 25 years old when I found out that her husband, my grandfather, uh, drunk one day, walked over to the Laramie Street Bridge in uh, uh, Cicero and jumped off. Yeah, we had been lied to for years about his death. There were always there were rumors. And uh, one day my aunt, who just actually died uh, last year, wonderful woman, one day when we were all adults, she said, you know, I'm, I, everybody who promised we'd keep this secret is dead. You know, because we'd be asking, what happened to Grandpa? He fell on a car. That was always the story. And I was like, how do you die falling on a car? Well, if it, he did fall on a car, but from about, you know, however many hundred feet up. So that kind of made sense out of my grandmother's hatred of alcohol. When we were old enough to drink and still drinking, if my grandmother was coming over, my father would say, I don't care if you drink, but don't put it in a, in a, a, a clear glass because I don't want my mother to know you're drinking. That's how serious that was. Which, you know, if someone is that serious about her, her aversion to alcohol, she must have seen some stuff around her. And she saw it, obviously, in her husband. She saw it in her sons. And, uh, and I saw it in everybody Everybody I ever met. My mother's brother burned his house down around him three times drunk. The third time it killed him. So, uh, so as I was growing up, you know, and hit, and I know this is a lust talk, not an alcohol talk, but I'm just trying to give you a picture of the family. Uh, as I, as I was entering my teen years, high school years, whatever, I discovered alcohol and quickly became an alcoholic. Um, the first time I drank, I completely blacked out. It's a funny story, but it's really more appropriate for, for another fellowship. Uh, I mean, it's sort of funny. I, I was, my other grandmother, uh, my mother's mother actually liked to drink, and my first drunk was on her booze because I, I, we had stolen it from her. But anyway, um, I also discovered lust. I discovered pornography and masturbation. I don't remember in what order, but fairly close one upon the other. And, um, you know, this is the toughest part of my talk when I tell my story. I, you know, it's funny. I don't really like telling my story that much. I love talking in front of groups, but I, I like to talk about almost anything but my story. I don't know why that is, um, but part of it is that when I get to this part and I start talking about the pornography, I can start picturing images of actual pornographic pictures that I have not seen for at least 33 years, but, but those particular ones are from high school 50 years ago. Well, no, not 50, but 40, 40, 40 years ago. And, you know, so I just have to stop every time and just surrender the images, the memories, the pictures, the fantasies, and give up the right to revisit them. But anyway, I discovered uh, lust. I discovered masturbation. I discovered pornography. Pornography was like a lot of things in my house. Nothing was ever spoken. My my. Two brothers, we, I actually have three brothers, but the one is much younger, but, but, but my two brothers who were the, around the same age as me, we all knew where we hid the pornography, but it, we never spoke about it. It would just get traded from one guy's dresser to another, and then there was a space under the 
bottom dresser drawer in the bathroom where where eventually we just you know you'd open that up and there'd be you know four or five magazines in there and you know we just steal each other's pornography and put it in each other's rooms and never not, we you know I would know like okay it's not here I I know it's, it's probably over in this guy's it's about his turn to have stolen it let's see oh yeah there it is but never a word said and that was a good metaphor for the neighborhood I grew up in I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood where uh, alcoholism was perceived at that time as normal. Almost everybody had it, so almost nobody knew it. Uh, and sexaholism, uh, if it existed, would never, ever have been spoken about. That was one thing nobody ever talked about. Uh, my training in sexuality consisted of two talks. One was by my father. He called me into his room when I was in sixth or seventh grade. He told me the facts of life. He was sweating bullets the entire time. He lost 15 pounds from the beginning to the end. And uh, when I walked out, I thought, I'm not sure what he's talking about, but whatever it is, it must be pretty terrible because I've never seen that man so nervous in my entire life. <laughs> and then uh, our pastor would come in in eighth grade and tell you this story. And he lost about 25 pounds and was beet red the entire time. And obviously didn't know much about it, which was probably a good thing because I don't think he was supposed to know too much about it. But uh, that was it. That was it. Everything else I learned from pornographic magazines and the lies me and my friends and brothers told each other. Um, my story's not, it's not real dramatic. It's basically about masturbation, pornography, uh, that going from magazines to adult theaters, you know, when I grew up, there was all this technology stuff literally did not exist. So you, you had to buy a ticket to go to a movie. Um, and then I found out there were things called adult bookstores. That was like, uh, that was, this is the second time I've used this image. I'm again going to have to stop and do a surrender, but I was going to say that was like being in a candy store. Well, one of the places uh, in our town was called the candy store. And uh, I need to give up the images, memories, pictures, and the right to revisit uh, my visit to the candy store, which was near the end of my my acting out. Um, yeah, it was just for me. It was uh, incredible. And anticipation was something would happen, and I would start. I don't know what the word is. Uh, my heart would start racing, and I would think, "Oh, I got to have sex." mostly with myself. I don't think I took a shower from the time I was 15, 16, whenever I started masturbating till the time I got sexually sober without masturbating, ever. It might have happened, but if it did, it was almost never. Um, and then once I discovered, you know, the movie stores and the bookstores and all that, uh, I mean, I could not drive by an adult bookstore without going in. And I would try, and I would try, and I would fail, and I would fail. And my cycle was the high of the acting out, and the minute it was over, the shame of an Irish Catholic kid who most of this time I was in the seminary system for the archdiocese studying to be a Catholic priest. Uh, and I would, I would go from, I gotta have this to how could I have done this again? And this went on for years. <clears throat> and, um, The problem for me was, you know, Harvey talked so well about it last night. By the way, in my humble and totally correct opinion, that was the greatest essay talk ever given. That was a beautiful, beautiful talk. And you could miss some of it because Harvey sometimes, he, he's talking about something. And he, he, you know, he's, he's, what he was really talking about last night was the freedom, of, the happy, joyous, and freedom of being a recovering sexaholic. What a, what a, mag, what a magnificent talk. But I still struggle with the good versus bad instead of sick getting well. You know, um, I still struggle with that. And uh, I, I just, I, my problem was I couldn't live with, I couldn't live with myself. I had to act out and I hated myself because I had to act out. And that was it. You know, uh, I remember driving by a bookstore one time <clears throat> and, uh, saying, I'm not going in. And by this time, I had stopped drinking, and I knew the serenity prayer. 
And I thought, I'll do this prayer. And I'm praying the serenity prayer like crazy. And I'm thinking, if I just don't pull over, I won't have to stop. And then I pulled over and, I, and I'm literally praying the serenity prayer. Don't put the car in park. God grant me the serenity. Oh, car's in park. Don't open the door. If you don't open the door, you won't go in, which is logical. If I can't get out of the car, I'm not going in. I'm praying, God, give me the strength not to open the door. Serenity, courage, wisdom. Oh, the door's open. Don't go in. Walk around the block once. I don't even remember if I did walk around the block. And um, eventually, of course, I went. And then the last one is, don't masturbate. And then the very last one is, don't finish. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I remember one time leaving one of those places, giving myself positive self-talk. I had learned something about positive self-talk. I'm not a real big fan of it, by the way, but but uh, I was saying, you know, some happy horse crap to myself about, well, you're only human and everybody this and everybody that. And the next thing I knew, I had pulled over to the side of the road and I was pounding my fist into the steering wheel. I can't believe this happened again. The year after I graduated from college, I was teaching uh, religion in a girls' Catholic high school. And I, I uh, was drinking like a fish and uh, got involved in a, what we call an affair with one of the other teachers. And she was married, but not to me. And uh, I used to, I used to uh, drink with her husband on Tuesday and drink and sleep with her on Wednesday. And... Uh, Remember, one of the guys, one of my fellow faculty members, he used to pick me up for work every morning, and he was trying to talk to me, saying, you know, something's wrong here, buddy. And uh, and he said, you know, this guy, if he if this if he knew you were messing around with his wife, I just want you to know he would kill you. And I thought this was great. Like I thought this made me dangerously cool or something. And um, anyway, I. I desperately was trying to get away from this situation too, but I just couldn't say no. <clears throat> I remember literally, uh, we were, the basketball team was going down state. And so we were going down with, with the students as chaperones. I was chaperoning these students. What a joke. And, uh, and, uh, I begged my girlfriend to go with me because I knew if she went with me, I'd probably end up sleeping with her and then I wouldn't sleep with the other person. This was my, this was my sobriety plan. Uh, she, uh, she, she took a pass and I asked my best friend to go. He couldn't go. He had something going on. So I went down there and sure enough, you know, things happened and I wake up in the morning and, uh, I'm in bed with this gal and I realize the door to the hotel room's open and I can hear Every faculty has a gossip, and I can hear her coming down the hall, and I'm thinking, all you have to do is roll over onto the floor, and she won't know you're in here. Just stay under the bed until the crisis passes. It's all you have to do, Mike. I'm trying to get myself to do it, and you know, I'm so hungover. I'm so filled with shame. I'm so filled with regret. I'm looking, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Teaching religion? What am I doing? And I couldn't move, and she came in, and it was all over the school. <clears throat> Last day of school, we had a picnic, faculty picnic, and I I had stayed away from her for two months from the, from that story I just told you to the last day of school, and uh, I didn't have a car, so I was always bumming rides. So she said, "Do you want to ride home?" Which I knew what that meant. And I, I was not coming back to that school. I was going back to the seminary to study to be a priest. Because <laughs> that was going to be my escape from this year of hell that I had inflicted upon myself. And uh, so, of course, I wanted to ride home. This was going to be my last hurrah. Well, on the way to the forest preserve, she wanted to stop at a restaurant, which I thought was rather strange. And she asked me a question in that restaurant. She said, we haven't been together in a couple months. I just want to ask you, do you still love me? Do you still care about me? Answer, honest answer in my head, absolutely not. I'm so done with this. It is unbelievable. I cannot wait to get out of here and never, ever, ever see you again. But I just want to have sex with you one more time. It didn't seem like 
It didn't seem like the answer she was looking for. So I said, yes. And at that moment, and it's the only moment in life that I've felt this, and this is not to say that I haven't committed other mortal sins. I probably have. I suppose actually having an affair with her was one of them, now that I think about it. But, but, uh, but at that moment, I felt darkness descend on me because I knew that I was lying through my teeth, that, that, that the lack of respect I was showing this human being was beyond redemption. And uh, we did have a great time, though. About five minutes into the Forest Preserve, the Forest Preserve police showed up, shined a light on in the window and said, you can either go home or go to jail. You got 30 seconds. So that was great. That's what it was like. What happened? My uh, older brother, a guy a couple of you know, uh, started telling me, about his lust problems, and that he'd found a program. Now, the first program that came to Chicago was not SA, it was SAA. And he was going to these meetings, and he was telling me about what, you know, what his problem had been and how he was now starting to find a solution. And so I was listening, and I was playing sort of the slightly younger brother in the seminary. Hey, Glad you're getting help for yourself, buddy. That's great. You know, very supportive of everything you're doing and all this crap. And then one day, I don't know why, I have no memory of anything particular. Uh, one day I looked at him and I said, me too. And I burst into tears. And uh, my memory is that he immediately whisked me off to a meeting, you know, like that moment. It could have been a week later for all I know. I don't remember. All I know is that uh, he took me to a meeting. And those early meetings were crazy. I mean, nobody knew what they were doing. We were in a fellowship without a sobriety definition. So what I was trying to stay sober from, you were telling me was okay. And it was all this, well, that's okay for me, but that's not okay for me. And, you know, there were about 32 sobriety definitions and only six people. <laughs> um, but I'm not knocking it because it was the first group of people in Chicago trying to address this issue. And it, it was, it was, it was painful. It was chaotic, but it was great. Um, I remember early on I was I was uh sort of a, a a traveling salesman but just in the car around Chicago at the time and I was out on a sales call and I was eating lunch somewhere and uh as I was eating I looked across the street and I saw an adult bookstore and and what I call it started it is the sweaty palms the racing the I got it but I don't want to and I know I shouldn't so I'm not going to but I absolutely have to and the mind's going a hundred miles an hour, and um, I looked up and I noticed there was a phone booth in the restaurant. In those days, if you wanted to make a call, you didn't, you know, you weren't at home. You had to have a phone booth. <laughs> I, I suppose there may be people here who don't even know what a phone booth is, but it's a booth with a phone in it. Glad we could clarify that for you. Anyway, I fiddled around in my pocket and I had quarters and I thought, I'm going to use these quarters. The question is, am I putting them in the slot in the adult bookstore or am I putting them in the phone? This was my moment of truth. I walked over to the phone and I thought, well, I'll call the guy. The guy was some guy I'd asked to be my sponsor. To be honest, I'm not even sure I remember who it was. I think I know who it was, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I thought, I'll call the guy if... Yeah, maybe if he can talk me out of it, fine. And if he can't, I can. You know, I won't use all the quarters on the phone, so I'll still have some left. And I called the guy. And this is really important, so listen to this part carefully. He said to me, it's complicated and it's profound, so stick with me on this. He said to me, don't do it. <laughs> don't go across the street to the bookstore. Instead... Drive straight home. When you get home, call me again. What you are to tell me is that you didn't go in to the bookstore and that you're still sober. Can you do that? I said, yes, I can. And he was a smart sponsor. He said, will you do that? 
I think my voice probably broke a little bit as I said, uh, yeah, I, I will. And I didn't know whether to be happy or sad. Probably a little both. And I drove home and I called him and I said, I'm sober. Been sober ever since. 33 years, 7 months. About um, about two years into that, uh, same guy, my older brother, I forget how he found out, but he found out there was another program called SA, and we, we chatted about it, and he said he thought that uh, it might might be a stronger program, and that was sort of the first idea that groups made a difference, that the kind of group you were made a difference. So we we I shouldn't say we. He really he really brought SA to Chicago. I just started showing up to the meetings. Uh, the first meetings were out in the suburbs, and we started going to SA meetings, and, and there was still chaos. There was still a lot of people who didn't quite know what they were doing, but we did have a sobriety definition. We did have some literature, and the, the meetings started to get stronger. And then, and then one started in the basement of, of a church called St. Teresa's on the north side of Chicago in 1987, and that was pretty close to my house, and I started going to that meeting, and, and that's still my home group Wednesday night, 7.30 to 9. I've been there 45 to 50 times a year, every year for, every year for the last 30 years, and, uh, and I love it. Saved my life. Keep saving my life. Um, and the early years there, um, were good, but there was, there was, there was a lot of chronic relapse. Thankfully, I wasn't part of it. Thank you, thank you, Lord. Um, uh, but there was a lot of chronic relapse. There was a lot of a lot of struggles in the group, a lot of fights, and um, uh, we started we started noticing some problems in the group. And the good thing about that is that I listed many of them here, which would help me with my talk. I have the worst handwriting of any human being I've ever met. So the question is going to be whether I can read any of my notes. So far, I can't read a word of it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna Gonna work on it. What the hell does that say? <laughs> okay, I know number one is out. You're gonna not get that dose of wisdom, but number two, I've got. So, so one thing somebody noticed one day is I don't know if it was me or somebody else was in conversation. It came up, you know, why do we always at the end of the meeting, the chair at the end of the meeting, ask someone to lead the Lord's prayer? Why do we always ask the person? with the most dramatic, painful, sorrowful, and well-delivered relapse story to lead the Lord's Prayer at the end of every meeting. Because that's what would happen. We'd be in a meeting, and Mike, just an example, Mike is a pillar of the community, but Mike would say, you know, uh, yeah, I had three weeks, and everything was great, and I worked all 12 steps in three weeks, and, you know, everything was just going perfect. And then, you know, I was walking down the street, and I, and I saw this woman, and the next thing I knew, I was in her car having sex with her uh, while her baby was next to her in the, in the, in the, in the car seat, you know. And um, we'd say, wow, that poor guy. He's really suffering. At the end of the meeting, I'd probably be me. You know, I'd think, oh. Now, John over here would be celebrating his six-month anniversary. Like, yeah, that is so boring, John. <laughs> Did you listen to what Mike had to say over here? Hey, Mike, lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Now, the insanity of this doesn't, doesn't become so obvious because unlike Alcoholics Anonymous, when there's a drunk guy sitting in an SA meeting, unless you really are paying attention and listening, you don't know he's drunk. Or she. If Mike was drunk on alcohol in an AA meeting, the chances of him being asked to lead the Lord's Prayer at the end are, are zero. If he doesn't behave himself, he might not even make it through the meeting. So we just started realizing little things like that. Mike would tell his terrible relapse story and afterward everybody pat him on the back and say, don't worry about it, buddy. We're all human. Keep coming back. You know, I used this example yesterday. They had this thing upstairs, chat with Mike C., which was actually kind of fun. And, um, you know, I was using the example to try to make the point uh, about how we need to begin to strengthen our groups. That um, if my son is 17 years old and he asks for the car, I say a few things to him. I say, son... We're gonna be gonna have the car subject to a few rules. No drinking. Can you handle that? Yeah, Dad. There'll be no drinking. 
No, no drugs, no marijuana. Yep, no pot, Dad. Promise. No girls in my car. I mean, you're going out on a date. You're going to have a girl in my car, but no girls in my car. In other words, keep her in the front seat. Um, and there was one more I wanted. To, oh, yeah, don't smash my car. Those were my four rules. Can you handle that, son? Sure, Dad, I can handle that. This is a hypothetical, by the way. My son never did the following things that I know of. Uh, so, oh, wait, no, there's five. Be home by midnight. So about 2.30 in the morning, I hear screeching tires that sounds suspiciously close to my driveway. So being a curious lad, I go downstairs and someone's trying to get in my house. I'm trying to decide whether to get out the old trusty Louisville slugger or not to beat this person's head in and find out it's actually my son, but he can't get in the door because he's so drunk he can't get the key in the slot. So he comes in and throws up on my shoes. I put him over on the couch with a bucket and notice the motor's still running because I can hear it. So I come out. There's a lovely damsel in the back seat. I have to throw a blanket over her or I'm going to lose my sexual sobriety. And I notice my car has a funny smell. I haven't smelled it in years being a recovering guy, but it smells suspiciously like marijuana. And then, as I'm trying to figure out what the heck to do next, because I know if I call this girl's daddy, her life is over, and if I don't, she's spending the night in my car. Because I ain't bringing her in with my son. They seem to have already had a good time. So I'm getting out of the car pacing, and I look and notice, you know, my, my front headlights are both smashed in. So being a good dad, I go into my son and I say, Son, we're all human and I love you. Keep coming back. Probably not going to get the Father of the Year award for that one. But that's what we were doing in our meetings. We didn't know it. It wasn't on purpose. We had good intentions, but we were enabling people to stay sick. We were basically saying, you have our permission to come to this meeting every week and act out for the rest of your life and your punishment will be to get to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Well, we're not really in the punishment business, so that's the wrong word. Kind of like Harvey catching himself saying bad instead of sick or should instead of something last night. Uh, but there are consequences that, to, to behavior. And we started talking about Maybe there's some things we could do different in this group that would foster a culture of sobriety, that over time would foster an expectation that you will stay sober if you're part of our group. It doesn't mean everybody does. It doesn't mean nobody's ever going to relapse because we are human. But if relapse becomes the exception rather than the rule, then when somebody walks into your group, they got a better shot. Everybody's responsible for their own sobriety. You know, nobody, nobody, nobody's losing their sobriety. We all want to blame something when we lose our sobriety. My favorite is stress. I was under a lot of stress. And who isn't? You know, I guess there's people out there who aren't, but I, I haven't met too many of them. Um, but we all want to blame someone or something. But the reality is we're responsible. But at the same time, if I got a bunch of people like you around rather than trying to do it myself, I got a better shot. And if you people actually know what you're doing, I got an even better shot. And if you actually expect me to stay sober and are willing to do to any, anything to help me stay sober, rather than just sort of, we're just a collection, you know, a meeting is a collection of individuals who gather. A lot of times, like in Chicago, the downtown meetings that we have, they're meetings, they're not groups. They're, they're good, they're good in a pinch, but they're meetings because there's no set people who are there who've made this their home. And, Meetings are better than nothing, but they're not as good as groups. And so we started asking the person with the longest anniversary to lead the Lord's Prayer at the end of every meeting. Um, we kept saying, keep coming back and we love you when somebody relapsed. But we stopped saying, it's okay. We started telling them, 
not so much when they were new, but particularly if it was guys who've been around a long time and you know chronic relapses, it's not okay. You're okay, but it's not okay. Um, then we started uh, getting this idea that sponsorship was not a one-on-one thing. This was probably if I had if I had to take my guess in terms of what transformed our meeting from a meeting into a group. It, it was that uh, sponsorship was a group activity. So let's say I'm sponsoring Mike. Well, in the old days, till I learned better, I, I thought that was a one-on-one confidential relationship that Sexaholics Anonymous meant that whatever Mike said to me was absolutely confidential, that I could never tell another human being. And that was working great until the day Mike said to me, i, I got to tell you something. you got to promise never to tell another soul. And I said, of course, I'm your sponsor. I'm, I'm, I was in the seminary, man. This is like priesthood. This is confession, baby. Go for it. Okay, uh, I had sex with my seven-year-old daughter last night, and as soon as we're done with this conversation, which I hope is going to make me feel better, because that's why I'm here to talk to you, sponsor, uh, I'm going to go home and do it again. Okay, I, I'm in a little bit of a bind here. I can't say anything to anybody. Now, that's an extreme example. I always use extreme examples to make my point. It usually works, although there's always a small minority who want to kill me afterward. <laughs> Whatever. But um, uh, so far, none of them have done it, for which I'm grateful. Um, you know, that one's a little, it's a good one, but it, it has a whole legal thing, and, and, that, and that's a whole nother, a whole nother dynamic. But it, but, it, but it doesn't matter. We had a guy. I was sponsoring, you know, was basically saying, I, I'm pretty sure I have uh, a sexually transmitted disease, but if I stop having sex with my wife, she's going to be suspicious that I have a sexually transmitted disease because before I've had sexually transmitted diseases. I made this rather outlandish suggestion that she, why don't you tell your wife? And um, he said, well, she's, if I tell her, she's going to know. I said, yeah, but if you don't, you might kill her. And um, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And he left the program. Because he almost had to, because I, I couldn't bear to be in the same room with him. Uh, years later, similar situation. I had learned that now if a sponsee comes to me and says, i got to tell you something, but it's so personal, it's so tragic, it's so profound, it's so whatever, that you got to promise me not to tell anyone. I said, here's my deal. Anonymous to me means I'll never tell anybody outside of this program without your permission. But within Sexaholics Anonymous, I will talk to any sober member who can help us solve this problem. And if you're not okay with that, don't tell me. And that's what's happened to our group. Um, So same situation happened a few years later and we got a whole group of guys to talk to this guy. Result was the same. He didn't do it. But the result was different in that I didn't spend the next six months of my life feeling like a horse's ass. And that's important because one of the things, and and I'm going to just do a little bit of reading from the the, the 12 and 12. Um, This stuff, it's all in the book, but we just don't know it's there, in part because it's in the second half, which is called the 12 Traditions, which nobody reads. And... uh, But I just want to read you Tradition 1. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon SA unity. Read it one more time. Our common welfare comes first. Personal recovery depends upon SA unity. Very nice tradition. However, if you don't read the long form, you don't really know why. And the only way to find out is to read the whole chapter, which is three pages. <laughs> Whereas you could just go to the back and in two, three sentences or two here? Three. Three sentences you can pretty much get the basics. Each member of Sexaholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. Essay must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Hence our common welfare comes first, but individual welfare follows close afterward. I'm going to read it one more time. Each member of Sexaholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. Essay must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Hence, our common welfare comes first, but individual welfare follows close 
afterward. Why does our common welfare come first? Because uh, we're going to die otherwise. And you know, some people will say, well, in essay, you don't really die like you do from alcohol. Well, f well, first of all, that's wrong. Many people do die. Uh, and second of all, many of us were walking around so spiritually dead that we're so useless to our wives, our families, our employers, and our friends that we might as well have been dead. Because we were kind of spiritually, not kind of, we were spiritually dead. So the, here it is. The reason nobody reads the traditions is because if newcomers read the traditions, we'd have no program. Hey, Dave, welcome to SA, your first meeting. I just want you to know you're a small part of a great whole. Hey, Dave, where are you going? He's running out of the room. I'm coming. If I come into a 12-step program, I'm miserable, and I'm coming to get help for myself. And that's fine. But at some point, at some point, whether it's a year, two years, three years, at some point down the road, hopefully I'm sober enough to start noticing some of you and wanting to be of use and service to some of you and starting to get some humility and realizing, oh my God, I'm just a small part of a great whole. For this thing to continue, I, I need to stay sober. Group's more important than the individual. And this last sentence, but individual welfare follows close afterwards. I have no idea, but I can imagine the conversation. They've got it all done. Hence, our common welfare comes first. I'm just imagining Bill's like, you know, really proud of that. And some guy says, Bill, you better throw something in about the individual. They're still going to run out of the room, even with three years. Okay, but individual welfare follows close after, you know. Our common welfare comes first. That's what we started to try to focus on. And, and our common welfare is greatly enhanced when sponsors feel they, like they have support. That's, I think that's been more than anything. I'm looking at these two guys because they're in my group, but I think that's been more than anything what helped transform us from a meeting into a group. I may not know the details of every single member's story, and I don't need to, but I know the basics of any guy in our group, who's been, guy or gal, who's been around for more than four or five months. And the reason I know it is because sooner or later their sponsor talks to their sponsor who talks to their sponsor who talks to me. And Harvey knows the details of probably seven or eight guys in our group because when I'm really out of ideas, I just call Harvey and say, what do I do next? Because sometimes I have absolutely no idea. Don't tell anybody. But... um. And one of the things that came out of that was the concept of a check meeting. Now, your group may or may not be ready for a check meeting. It, it, you have to have developed at least some of the, the ideas about, about being a group rather than a meeting to have a check meeting. But if I'm sponsoring John and John's sponsoring Mike, and Mike is staying sober, we don't have check meetings to deal with relapse for the most part. But we, but, Guys run into issues as sponsors. I call it loneliness. I, I was lonely as a sponsor when I when I didn't realize I could get help being a sponsor. I I, I made some terrible mistakes as a sponsor. I, a, co a couple of them came up in one of the meetings the, the other day. I was sponsoring a guy whose marriage was on the rocks. He wanted to talk to me about marriage, his marriage constantly. He wasn't staying sober. I didn't realize at that time that he'd already fired me like 400 times. How do you know if your sponsor's fired you? They're not sober. Sponsors fired you if you're not sober. Unless you're telling them not to be, which, you know, I think the only way you could probably be a bad sponsor is to tell someone, go act out, I don't want you to stay sober. And there could even be cases there where you could argue it's a good reverse psychology. So it's pretty hard to be a bad sponsor. Yet there's all these sponsors thinking they're bad sponsors or they're barely adequate. There's, there's a lot of guilt I've found over the years a lot of loneliness, a lot of because guys are trying to do something that they're not qualified to do. You know what a sponsor is? It's a sex drunk. That's it. We're not doctors, ministers, priests, rabbis. Some of us may be those things, but we're not in here because we're those things. We're probably in here because we were doing something wrong being those things. You know, we're not in here because of our talents and our skills. We're in here because we're sex drunks. And 
If I'm your sponsor, I'm just a sex drunk who's been sober a little longer than you, who's hopefully worked a few more steps and maybe knows a little bit more only because I've been around a little bit longer to have a little bit more experience, strength, and hope. So I need help. And I didn't, I knew, I kind of knew that, but I didn't think I was supposed to. It's funny. Here is a program that's all about asking for help. But we only think of that in terms of the sponsee asking the sponsor for help when it's really the sponsor asking somebody else for help so he can be a sponsor to the sponsee. So the check meeting would be, Mike's sober, he's been sober six months, John, he's blown through three deadlines on his fourth step. Every time John talks to him about it, Mike promises he's going to do better and then blows him off again. And John has had it. And John makes the mistake of saying to me after a meeting one night, I want to wring Mike's neck. He's doing nothing that I ask him. And I say, well, is he sober? Yeah, he's sober, but I don't know how long he's going to stay sober. Something's, something's wrong. And I learned, in the old days, I'd be all focused on Mike. I learned to say, John, how are you doing? The sponsor, how you doing? I'm miserable. I, we were doing great. Now nothing's right. I, 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 maybe I've tried this. I've tried that. You, you'll hear these guys ringing their necks. I tried everything. I said, John, what would you think if we got three or four senior members together and had a little meeting with Mike after the meeting next week? Yeah, I'd love to do that. That's one of those check meetings, right? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. So the next week, there'd be five or six guys after the meeting. We'd sit down. We'd ask someone to chair that check meeting, not the sponsor, someone else. And that person would just simply say, hey, guys, we're having a check meeting. We're going to listen to John. He's got some issues as a sponsor. And uh, go from there and say, John, what's going on? And John will tell us what's going on. Then we'll turn to Mike and say, as a sponsee and say, Mike, we want to hear from you too, real briefly. We don't want to turn this into a sponsee diarrhea fest, <laughs> diarrhea of the mouth fest. And uh, so Mike will briefly speak. And then we'll just simply say to the four guys in the room, what do you think, guys? Four guys will go around and make a little comment. Then the chair will say, thanks, John, any last comments? Mike, briefly, any last comments? Great. Serenity prayer. That's it. Totally transformed our meeting into a group. Now you got six guys on top of this problem, you know. And usually what happens, uh, I know I'm supposed to talk into the mic, but I want to show you. Usually what happens, if you look at the sponsee at the end of a check meeting, he's either like this, <sighs> broken and contrite spirit, spirit of the first step, Roy K., white book. He's like, and and if the sponsor sees that, you see the relief on him too, like, okay, I got a feeling the next time I ask Mike to do a four-step, the son of a gun is going to do it. Mission accomplished. Or the sponsees like this, in one way or another. I mean, we've had some dramatic ends to some check meetings, including yours truly <laughs> calling one off in the middle of it <laughs> so that I didn't kill the sponsee. But... um because that would have been one of those felonies then I couldn't have talked about here, right, I think. But anyways, um, uh, you see this. And that's great too, because then the sponsee realizes that he could be a combination of Jesus Christ, the Buddha, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, let's throw him in his birthday tomorrow, and... Uh, I don't know, some other great person. Let's throw a... Lyndon Baines Johnson, let's throw a Texan in. He could be a combination of all these people and nothing was going to get through to this guy. And that's a relief. So I want to read one more tradition. This is tradition four, except that's not the one I want to read. So let's see. What is the one I want to read? I think maybe it's ten. You know, I don't even know. Isn't that terrible? I've been giving this talk for 15 years, and I don't know which tradition it is. Hang on a second. That's not it. That's not it. It's five. Thank you. God, that is pathetic. Okay. Now, tradition five. Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. I repeat. Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. Now, once again, I'll go to the long form, which, unlike tradition one, is almost identical to the short form with a, just a little phrase thrown in. 
Each Sexaholics Anonymous group ought to be a spiritual entity having but one primary purpose, that of carrying its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. One more time. Each Sexaholics Anonymous group ought to be a spiritual entity having but one primary purpose, that of carrying its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. Now, a spiritual entity could get you into a lot of trouble because we're not a religious program and we don't want to start fighting about, you know, theoretical definitions of the word spiritual or entity, you know. Um, but what it's saying is that a group ought to have an identity, that people ought to know what your group stands for. And it gives us a hint about what that identity ought to be about. It, it doesn't say, in, e in the short or long form, it doesn't say carry the message. It says carry its message. The group. The group should have a message. And if you're in a meeting, there's the message that's sort of in the meeting, but that's different from having a group that has a message. Uh, and, and the primary purpose of the group is not to help me stay sober. That's what I think when I get there, and it's fine if I think that when I get there. But the primary purpose of the group is not our own sobriety. It's, it's to be there for the next man or woman who comes in. And I've heard different versions of this over the years, either from newcomers who come into our group or people who come, you know, visiting from out of town. They'll say something like this to me. I can't quite define it, but when I left your meeting, I knew you guys meant business. Something was going on there bigger than the sum of its parts. You know, it's probably the equivalent. Harvey was talking about being catapulted into the fourth dimension last night in terms of individual sobriety. It's probably the equivalent of that in terms of group sobriety. People know we mean business. People know we're serious. Sometimes we're sort of thought, thought of as kind of the tough love group. And it's like, I'm okay with that. But, it, it, but people get caught up on the tough part. I mean, I know this is going to sound funny, and, may, and maybe the imagery is incorrect. I don't know, but I, what we've got is we've got a group of people in love with each other. And I don't mean that in the romantic sense, but I do mean it in the, in the deep sense of a deep personal intimacy that I'd do anything for my brothers or my sisters, anything for them, uh, because I've figured out that our, our primary purpose is to carry a message to one another, but also so that the next person who comes in will have that sense. And so there's a lot of little things we do to um, to foster that culture of sobriety, some of which I've already given you. Um, you know, our group, we haven't done it in a while, we're probably due, but our group has taken two or three group inventories over the year, years, and there, there's a... Uh, there's a method to do that that you can get from the central office uh, to just talk about what's going right, what's going wrong. Another thing we did a few years ago, uh, we had four or five guys with more than five years sobriety relapse in the course of a year. This was a few years back. And we just started talking about it. Again, each person is responsible for their own recovery, so we weren't blaming ourselves or anything. But we were saying, is there anything going on in the group that maybe we're missing something? And uh, we had an open forum on a Saturday morning. We just sat and talked for, I don't know, an hour or two. And out of that, what we, what we came to was that we needed to focus on transparency. And we had a sponsorship workshop on transparency. Because what we discovered was that we were treating, with, not on purpose, but we were treating the newcomers and guys with long-term sobriety very differently. And the example I, I would use is, again, let's just say Mike had two months and John had 10 years, and I'm sponsoring them both. And Mike calls me and he says, hey, Mike, I had a little lust today. Okay, my red light goes on. My sponsee's lying to me. There's no such thing as a little lust if you're a sexaholic. You know, there might be a little lust if you're somebody else, but if you're a sexaholic, powerless over lust, it's like saying, I had, being an alcoholic, I had a little alcohol. I had a little temptation. No, you know. So I, I'm going to be right on it. Mike, what do you mean a little lust? Mike says, well, yeah, I, I, I got on the Internet for a few minutes. Few. That's a lie. I know this. I, might, I may or may not, depending on my relationship with Mike, tell him I think he's lying, but I'm, I know he's lying. And I said, what, 
Could you explain few to me, Mike? I'm a little slow. Well, you know, I was on there while my wife was taking a nap. I said, what does your wife's nap have to do with it? You, 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 he's lying to me again. He doesn't, I want, I'm a numbers guy. I want a number. Every time I talk, a sponsor says, I did this, I go, for how long? And I get this vague answer. It really pisses me off. I want numbers. So, so finally Mike says to me, about an hour. I said, one hour? Well, about two. So we're talking two hours. It's 120 minutes. You were on the internet. That's a real problem. See me after the meeting tomorrow. We got to talk. Now, ten minutes later, John calls me. John's got ten years. He says, I said, how you doing, John? He said, I'm doing okay. I had a little lust today. I said, did you turn it over? Yeah. Okay, see you tomorrow. Why? Because I don't trust Mike. I've only known him two months. He's new. I know he really needs my help. There are all these motivations that I'm going to be right there for Mike. I've known John for 10 years. John's not going to relapse. He's my buddy. I might golf with John or, you know, go out to dinner with John. Maybe I know John's wife. I'm not doing it on purpose, but I become complacent in my sponsorship of John because I'm assuming he knows what to do and he's going to do it. And that's what we discovered. And, and, and we started treating our longtime sober members the same way we treat our newer sober members by, by asking the questions that require transparent answers. It doesn't mean we never had another relapse, but the, we, the, the spate of them that we were having seemed to slow down substantially. And then it got turned on me because I happened to mention in passing one day, and this is probably five, six years back, I happened to mention in passing to somebody that I wasn't really making SA calls anymore because I got so many of them. I mean, I, sometimes I get, you know, I get at least three, four, five a day, but I might get 10, 12 calls a day. I don't need to make a call. I'll just check in when someone else is making their call. So I just mentioned this in passing to somebody, and the next thing I know, I'm into a check meeting, which is in the back room. And I'm like, what am I doing in the back room not running the show? This is ridiculous. <laughs> nobody, nobody goes in the back room without coming through me. Now I'm in the back room, and, and I was basically told by the group. We, and I don't know if you guys were in on that or not. I can't remember who the individuals were, but... Uh, one of them had an Irish brogue, I can tell you that. That I remember. Uh, and uh, they said, we want you making two calls a day in addition to any calls you get. And like a good, now, you know, I'm getting to be the, the sponsee here. So I go, oh, well, how long do you want me to do that for, guys? Because I'm thinking, you know, compliance versus surrender. A lot of us will comply for a while, hoping everybody forgets. That's not surrender, you know. And... uh so I'm, I'm more than willing to make these two calls a day. How long do you want me to do it for, guys? The rest of your life. So I have. I made two call, I now make two calls a day. I, I've probably missed a day or two here or there, but I've made two calls a day for just about the rest of my life. So um, I would encourage uh, you to think about your groups and think about is our group more of a meeting, a collection of individuals, each there to help themselves stay sober and help each other, too, as best as they can, which is a good thing? Or is it a group? Is it a spiritual entity that has a message that it carries because it knows that our common welfare comes first? And what are the things your group can do? I've given you a few of the things our group is doing, and, you know, some of them may work for your group, some of them may not. My guess is most of them would, but... Um, it's not, it's not that you need to, if Harvey's absolutely right, there's no one way to work this program. Uh, so there, there are different ways to develop a culture of sobriety, but I think the idea of doing it is what, is what is paramount. So what I'm gonna do is, is Lee around? He's not. Alright. Well that's okay. What we're gonna do is we're gonna start Q&A. If anybody has any situations in their own groups or any questions, either about my personal story or about the, the, the culture of sobriety stuff, uh, come on up and uh, ask, and I'll answer. And then at some point, Lee's going to come in and have to switch the CD. And when he does, we'll just take a minute or two break. Yeah, just go up to the mic. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I'm Yankel I'm from Lakeland, New Jersey, sex addict. Um, I have a question. I'm not that long sober, but 
Um, there's a friend of mine that came to the program a year before I did five years ago, and let's say we call him a chronic slipper. And in hindsight, I'm looking back and I'm listening to a lot of his shares, and I'm saying I should have seen this coming. I should have maybe spoken to him before that. Like first he was sharing how he's having difficulties with a sponsor or something, and he doesn't know what his relationship with the sponsor is, what it is, and how should he fire a sponsor, not fire a sponsor. Then his next time I heard his share was in the group how he had a little lust today. He was going to a mixed gym instead of a male-only gym, and he's looking at that, and I'm like looking at him, and I go, huh, you're in the program already for six years. I came into the program. You don't know that you don't go to gyms if you have gyms that are segregated, then you can go to those. And then another time he's sharing his lust issues, and then suddenly, then he slipped. And then another bell rings off. I remember five years ago, like every day or something, he was like always sharing about his financial concern. Excuse me, excuse me. I got the picture. What's, oh, the, what's the question? What is it that I could have done to help him? And like with him not even coming to me, he only comes to me once and then he runs to somebody else, runs to somebody else. What could I have done to help him? I'm okay. sorry for no, the No, no, that's fine. Question. Are you the sponsor? No. Okay, I'm just... Okay. gotcha. Um, well, I got good news and bad news. The good news is that there's nothing you could have done to help so you can relax and not feel guilty about it. The bad news is that there's nothing you could have done to help. Um I mean, again, I just get the, I just get what's presented, and obviously I'm not in the group, but, but from what you're saying, it sounds like a person who's not ready to be sober. And, um, the only thing you can do with somebody like that is let them know we're, we're, we're here for you. You're welcome to keep coming, but you're not doing what we do, so you're not going to get the results that we get, you know, and, uh, you did bring up one thing though that I, I, I do want to comment on. A lot of a lot of sponsees have issues with their sponsors. I personally feel that for the most part, and there are some exceptions, that issues with your sponsor is usually BS. Uh most sponsors are doing their best to help you get sober when you first come in, and our main job is to help you stay sober by taking you through the twelve steps. That's the job of the sponsor. And as you've heard me say here, it's really a group responsibility. I'm the front man if I'm your sponsor, but I'm going to get all the help I can get within the group, within SA, to help you. There, that's what everybody's doing. There's way too much focus on getting the perfect fit for a sponsor. Well, I'm married, so my sponsor has to be married. Not necessarily. Uh, my acting out was same sex, so my sponsor's acting out has to be. Not necessarily. I don't I don't care if my sponsor's acting out the same as mine. I don't care if he's married or not. I just want to know, is he working a good program and can he help take me through the 12 steps? I rarely hear a sponsor saying, I'm looking for the guy who's done the best job of working the 12 steps. That's the guy or gal I want. Rarely hear that. It's all about, it's not a personality fit. You know, a guy came up to me yesterday with a question about a sponsor. And, and you know, there's a lot of blame of sponsors, too. The, the culture in uh, unrecovered sexaholics of entitlement is astonishing. Um, you're entitled to nothing. That's my humble and totally correct opinion on that one. <laughs> you're entitled to nothing when you come in. You know, you're entitled to a few things, I suppose. You want to be treated decently like everybody else. But I mean, the, the guy yesterday saying to me, you know, my sponsor wants me to go back to step one. And I said, well, are you sober? And he said, no. I said, well, it seems like a pretty reasonable thing to do. Something maybe was missing, and he just kept he he kept insisting. I'm not criticizing my sponsor, and everything he said sounded to me like he was criticizing his sponsor. And I, I finally had to stop him because I realized, you know, this this is going to go on forever. And I and he said, what you're telling me is you think my sponsor's right, you know? And I said, yes. And then I shook his hand and moved on. Sponsors are almost always right, even when they're wrong. And what I mean by that, you know, I'm not taking this to extremes. You know, I've, I heard a guy once say, if my sponsor told me to jump off the Sears Tower, I'd jump off the Sears Tower. No, you, you wouldn't, first of all, unless you're stark raving mad. You'd get another sponsor because your sponsor's a lunatic. Okay, so that it is possible. But by and large, sponsors don't tell people. I've never had a sponsor tell me to jump off the Sears Tower, nor in all my 33 years of dealing with sponsors have I had any sponsor tell anyone to jump off the Sears Tower. I've had lots of sponsors tell me they felt like telling their sponsees to jump off the Sears Tower, 
But that's not a felony, so we can talk about that. So, when when newcomers come into our program, we have what I call a formal and an informal way of getting them their first temporary sponsor. The formal way is that we have we now have a newcomer's packet. The chair goes up to them and gives it to him, and he has a list of temporary sponsors, and the guy can pick from the list, or the chair gives, gives them somebody for the list and hook the two guys up. But a lot of newcomers won't go up to the chair after a meeting. So the informal way is, if Mike's the newcomer, I'll just go up to Mike and say, would you like a temporary sponsor? Every once in a while, a guy will say no. Very rarely. And I'll respect that and say, well, you really ought to get one as soon as possible. If you're here next week, I'm going to ask you again. But I'm not going to force it on. But n Right now? Okay. Okay, let me finish this question and then we'll, we'll take the break. Um, what's the question again? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So the informal method is, I'll just go up to Mike. Would you like a temporary sponsor? 90% of the time he's going to say yes. And I'll walk up to Dave and say, Dave, this is Mike. You want to be a temporary sponsor, don't you? And to Dave, Dave will, I hope, say, yeah, sure. Um, so, so that the guy, the guy's got somebody to start with. Okay, Lee's going to switch the CD. We're going to take a five-minute break. Come back for more Q and A. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to the Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.